0: There, the guy in the blue's doing it, if you saw him. Go ahead and pause the, the video. There you go. Um, when you're at the Western Wall, what it is, okay, so for almost 2,000 years, the the Jewish people were not able to worship at the temple, okay? From AD 70, uh, the Roman uh, Empire, the Roman army came in and, and uh, conquered Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem uh, the buildings. I mean, just completely. And the temple included. Every stone, Jesus said, every stone will be cast down. And literally, that's what happened. The wall that you see that is still intact um, is the the retaining wall of the foundation. It's not walls that would have been uh, necessarily the the walls of, of the structure. It's just the, the retaining walls. There, there'd be no reason to remove them or, or uh, push them over because they were what was holding up the the uh, Temple Mount uh, structure, okay? Uh, they're, they're the flooring. So that wall, though, um, they did not have access to for almost 2,000 years until 1948 when, when the Jewish nation uh, became a nation again. Uh, for all that time, they were dispersed um, all over the world and unable to continue to worship there and so when they came to israel and were able to come back to the, the western wall uh, what that is to them is the closest proximity they can get to what was the holy of holies the temple is no longer there the holy of holies is no longer there the ark of the covenant's not there um, but it's the closest that they can get to what would have been the holy of holies and so it's a very important and sacred place for them Um, Scripture uh, commands, or at least it implies that it's a good thing, to pray facing uh, the temple, and so that's why when they pray there, they don't just face any which way; they always face uh, the temple, uh, and they're they're praying in particular ways. So there's a lot of things that happen in Israel um, during the Sabbath that are a little bit different than what happens in the rest of the world. Uh, I'll get into a little bit of that, but we were able to be at the Western Wall um, during the Sabbath. So we went on Friday night. Friday, Friday night's when the Sabbath starts. When the sun goes down, that's when the Sabbath begins. Um, and what it is, is a, a group, I mean, a, a huge group of, of believers, Jewish believers, uh, Christians and other people coming uh, to the wall to celebrate. And they, they're singing and they're dancing and there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, and that whole area, that's just a very small corner of it, but that whole area is just filled shoulder to shoulder with people who are praying and celebrating the Sabbath. And um, when, when we were there, uh, there were some things that you notice about how they're dressed and what they're doing, um, and that were kind of interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but they, you can see that most of them are wearing black, okay? Okay and they're wearing a very particular outfit. And Orthodox Jewish people um, of a particular branch, they wear that outfit. It's a white shirt, black coat, black pants, um, and a lot of times a black tie. Um, and in that outfit, you think, what is the significance of that? The, the reality of where that came from um, was that, around, I think it was the 13th or 14th century um, in, in Western Europe, or Eastern Europe, the, uh, the Jewish people were commanded by the government to wear black. It was a requirement so that the people knew who they were. Just like in Nazi uh, Germany, they were required to wear uh, the, the Star of David. Okay? Uh, it, it was that kind of distinction that they were given. And what happened with that group of, of Orthodox Jewish people was that it became... The tradition of signifying their identity their religious identity their cultural identity but they continue to to wear black has nothing to do with the Bible has nothing to do with any legal command it's just a tradition that they have and there's a there's a lot that they do that is tradition that has little or nothing to do with what the Bible says Um, the hat you see that some of them are wearing like a kind of a top hat um, or a bowler hat, or uh, some of them actually wear these. I don't know if you've seen these. I think it's the Hasidic uh, Jewish guys who wear the the round, like fur hat. Anybody seen that? Um, it's a very particular, peculiar kind of hat. A lot of them wear the uh, little skull cap the, what we would say maybe yarmulke or a uh, kippa. Uh, and so how I remember that is that it it's uh, to keep your head warm. Um, so, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> you can groan, that's fine. But that little hat okay, where, did the, where does the, the, the head covering come from? Um, when we go to the western wall, there's a little there's a, not a little, but a big ramp from the main level of the plaza down to what you see there is the western wall. It's just a big area for prayer. And uh, there's a men's side and there's a women's side. Well, on the men's side, uh, before you get to the Western Wall, there's a, a cart or some kind of a, um, yeah, a cart that has uh, kippahs in them. And they're free and anybody can take them. But they require that every man who goes to the wall has to wear a head covering. So you can wear a ball cap, you can wear, you know, a... Uh, uh, whatever you want. If, if you have a cowboy hat, fine. Uh, stocking cap doesn't matter. Uh, but, if, but if you don't have a head covering, you have to grab one of those and you have to wear it when you're at the wall. It's a requirement. Where does that even come from? I was thinking it was somewhere in the Old Testament scripture about having some kind of a sign of authority on your head or something. And what I learned later was that there's no requirement in scripture for them to wear a head covering. It actually comes from uh, a, a rabbinic teaching in the year like 500 or so that they, the rabbis, came up with this teaching that Jewish men should have a hat to cover their head uh, as some kind of a sign of God's authority on them. So, but even though that's not a legal command in scripture, it has become a legalistic requirement for Orthodox Jewish men. And the different styles of hat just um, just kind of determines what branch they come from, whether it's Hasidic um, or some other branch of, of, uh, of Judaism. Uh, but that's all it does. So, so the guys that wear the big, you know, round caps, that's one, one type of, of Orthodox Jew, the ones who just wear the little kippah. When I was on uh, the flight I think it was going to Israel. There's a lot of Orthodox Jewish people going to Israel from New York. And um, they would wear these hats. And then I saw this one guy, just a couple rows in front of me. He took off that hat to put it in the, the storage rack above. And he had a little keep on his head uh, to keep his head covered while he was on the flight. Like they just It's like you will not uncover your head in public during the day. It's just they don't do it. Um, it's become a legalistic kind of requirement for them. Um, have you seen the tassels? I didn't get a really good picture of the tassels. They wear tassels on on, the, on their shirts, hanging down, okay, and front and back, just little strings. Just looks like strings hanging down. Uh, that actually does come from the scripture. Uh, it it tells them that they are supposed to uh, wear tassels, literally in Deuteronomy twenty two twelve says, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And they um, literally and legally um, wear these all the time. You you see them wearing uh, these tassels on their clothing. Um, They have these uh, different things that they do when they pray. Um, And and so when they're praying, a lot of times they'll be reading uh, scripture. And so if you can see in the corner, there's a kind of an archway, an opening, and what that is, is they've dug out underneath like a housing development uh, more of the wall, and they've created a, a long room, like 100 yards long, and along the back of that wall is bookshelves, just one after the next after the next, and it's just full of the the Hebrew scriptures, and so what they're doing generally is they are repeating scripture when they're praying. They're they're either reading it or they're reciting it. Um, but nine times out of ten or more, they're not praying like what we would pray, extemporaneously necessarily. Uh, they're, they're praying the scriptures. Um, go ahead and go back to that video if you don't mind. Um, and so what's going on when they're... See the... Go ahead and play it. When they're praying, they're, they're moving like this Okay, if you see that a little bit, and I did not know this until this last um, trip, okay, I'd, I'd always kind of wondered about that. It seems like a really, you know, active way to pray. Like, I, I thought that was always kind of, like, um, amazing to me that they, that they prayed like that, and I actually saw a guy on the plane, um, and he turned around because we were going west, so he was facing east, and he was praying, and he was kind of like hitting his head. Now, that might be concerning on a, n- a normal flight, but um, for for him, because he was an Orthodox, that was supposed to be funny. But he was, he was uh, an Orthodox Jew, and and he was praying and and uh, and moving like that. Um, I was told where that comes from, and and I don't know if do you know some of you from the early service know now, but do you know where that comes from, like scripturally, why they would. They would be required legally, like legalistically, to move their bodies like this when they pray. It just kind of blew my mind when I heard this. Deuteronomy 6 um, is the great command. Jesus repeats it. He says there's a great command to love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, mind, soul, and what's the last one? Strength and the reason they pray that way is because they have interpreted praying with all your strength to be that when you're praying, you need to be moving. Is that, I mean, that just kind of was like, floored me almost. Like, in my lifetime, I know that scripture, and I've seen people do this, and I've never thought, oh, that's why that is. But what's what's happened is that they have interpreted or or at least applied that passage into a practical here's how you love the Lord with all your strength now I want to be respectful about this because I think that there is potentially some value in praying more with more energy okay I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think that there's some good there's some value in that but and this is kind of gets to the heart of what we're going to talk about you read that in scripture love the lord your god this is the great command jesus repeats it love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength would you interpret that to mean well when i pray i need to be moving around or would you say god's intention for loving him with your strength has much more to do with how you live your life than whether or not you move when you pray And here's the essential problem, okay? I'm not saying that this is 100% the case for every Orthodox Jewish person, Um, but I think this gets to the heart of what human beings tend to do. We will take something as a religious, legalistic practice, and we will do that, and we will think that that is the fulfillment of what we need to do instead of, the, the beginning or the jumping-off place to get us to where God really wants us, which means this: it's almost as if they've substituted something that does not matter for something that does matter. And you and I, okay, thank the Lord, we never do that. Right? how are we uh, told that we should pray? What do we tell our kids? Fold your hands. Close your eyes. Don't open your eyes. Did anybody ever see Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? (laughs) Bow your heads. And if you really want to be spiritual, then you'll even get down on your knees and pray. Right? That's going to make your prayer much more powerful if you do all those and we actually do those things not the maybe getting down on your knees necessarily but uh, it, it would be weird if i just started praying and i left my eyes open and or and you did too and you're just looking at me and i'm looking at you and i'm just talking to the lord and like why is that it's because there's a passage that Jesus talks about a story between a uh, Pharisee and a tax collector, okay? I'm pretty sure this is where this whole practice comes from, at least in part. What happens in that story? The Pharisee is praying with his arms lifted up and face turned to heaven, and he's talking about how great he is. And the tax collector is, he is uh, humble, he's beating his chest, he has his face downcast. And Jesus says, which one of those two was justified before the Lord? The tax collector. And so we've interpreted that to be, this is how you need to pray. You need to pray with your eyes closed, your hands folded, and your head bowed, because that's the kind of prayer that God accepts. Right? And forgetting the actual meaning of that teaching or that story was a humble heart, not necessarily just the humble position. The position probably doesn't matter that much as the heart. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is essentially always addressing the heart of the issue, not just the external appearance of it, okay? So let's stand as we read God's word. We're talking about Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath and uh, the fact that he's going to address um, one of the most important issues of the day, um, in his day. is how to observe the Sabbath and what God's intention is. And so uh, Luke 14, starting in verse 1, says, One Sabbath, uh, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers, and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son, or an ox, for that matter, that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to him these things. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we're, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to come Give us a deeper sense of your will, of your heart, of what it is that you want us to to experience of your nature and your power, your love and your grace, God, as we worship you today, God, we pray that we're not just going through the motions of singing songs or bowing our heads, Lord, but that we are seeking you, seeking to know you and seeking to be known by you, seeking to... Get our hearts right with you, Lord, letting you do the work that uh, only you can do to transform, recreate, and uh, heal our hearts and our minds. That we might be your people, Lord, in a way that actually makes sense, Lord, to this world, that inspires and, and calls people, invites people into a relationship with you, not just because we have an external religion which half the time, Lord, is, is meaningless. Without a right relationship, God, it is meaningless. Help us to, to walk with you closely and uh, to invite people, other people, to do the same. And we'll give you all the praise, God, for all that you want to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, Jesus is going to address the issue of Sabbath, and like I said, Sabbath starts on uh, Friday night, goes to Saturday night, and in the meantime, there's a lot of stuff being in Jerusalem that you experience that you never experience anywhere else. The whole city shuts down, okay? They they can't drive cars, okay? If you're an Orthodox Jewish person or an observant Jewish person, you don't drive, okay? So, which is kind of weird and kind of cool in the same way because when we were there, we're on a tour bus going through empty streets on the Sabbath, and nobody else is driving hardly. You don't run into much traffic. A city of a million people, no traffic. Can you imagine? Um, they, they turn their phones off, completely off. We actually went uh, on the Sabbath um, Friday night to a Jewish uh, family's home for this, the Shabbat meal. Um, we got to experience that with them, and um, and so he, he asked, the, the father of the household asked that everybody turn their phone off. And he kind of explained a little bit about uh, why they do certain things. And, and it was kind of cool to hear it from, from him. But they turn off their computers. They turn off their phones. They, they, um, they have no um, electricity. Actually, they do because they put it on timers. <laughs> They're not allowed to make energy is what, the way he said it. Um, so they don't, they never get a phone call on the Sabbath. They never make a phone call on the Sabbath. Um, they, they uh, if they ride an elevator, so we stay in um, hotels, you know, and we're on, you know, whatever floor, say we're on the sixth floor. Uh, there is one elevator out of the, the group of elevators that is called a, a Shabbat or Sabbath elevator. And what that means is that it's going to stop and it's going to open its doors on every floor. It's automatic. You can push a button if you want. It doesn't change anything. It's going to stop at every floor, open, and keep going to the next and the next. And I rode on the the Sabbath elevator a couple times just for fun, just to see how it was. Um, And they require that because their law says uh, that you're not supposed to make fire on the Sabbath. Well, they've reinterpreted that or they've expanded on that to say, in our day, that means you cannot make energy. So you can't push an elevator button because that is creating uh, energy. Okay? So uh, the weird thing, I'd never heard this before, I didn't didn't know this, is that a Jewish person can get on an, uh, another elevator with a Gentile and, and if I as a Gentile um, ask them, you know, what floor do you need, then I could push their button for them. They could tell me that. But they cannot ask you to push the button. So if if I wanted to be a jerk, like I could just get on there and push my button. And, you know, this is actually how most people are on the elevator. We don't look at each other. You I mean, you're on an elevator. You don't tend to look at each other. It's almost weird if you do. But out of courtesy, you're supposed to ask, you know, this, the Jewish person what floor they need, and then you push their button for them. They can, they can let you do that for them, but they can't ask you to do it, and they can't do it themselves. It's just part of the, the legality of it. Um, and so, you know, being in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, you know, you, all these things that you kind of see in Scripture begin to, to come to life a little bit. You're like, oh, that's why this happened or that happened. But where does it all come from? And we know that it comes from um, the, the very beginning that God said, that he created in six days and on the seventh he rested, right? That's, that's pretty obvious. And then in the Ten Commandments, he says that you will um, make the Sabbath a holy day. You'll keep it holy. You won't do any work. And there's some explanation of that. Not a lot, but there's some explanation of kind of what work is and what, it isn't, wor- what isn't work. Um, and But then what made it even more profound for the Jewish people was the fact that in... Leviticus, there was a a teaching. I'm not going to read the whole passage here, uh, but there was a a prophecy and a blessing and a curse attached to the Sabbath. That if they would keep God's laws, then they would be blessed, and if they did not keep God's laws, then they would be cursed. And he actually goes into a a lot of detail about um, the the curses. In fact, much more detail about the curses than he does about uh, the blessings. But he says, um, if you break the covenant, if you don't keep the Sabbath, um, I won't, he says, I will lay your cities to waste. I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I will not smell your pleasing aromas. I, will, I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities "...shall be a waste, and the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land." That's Leviticus, okay? If you know your Bible, that's hundreds of years before the Babylonian exile. What happens in the Babylonian exile, you turn over to Second Chronicles chapter 36. Babylon comes, conquers Judea, okay, the southern part of Israel conquers jerusalem destroys the temple this is the first time the temple is destroyed Um, and then takes the people captive for 70 years jeremiah if you want to kind of get a better picture of all of this then read jeremiah he's he's not only prophesying what's going to happen he's also living through it and kind of telling the story as he experiences it Um, but he's all about the babylonian exile and what god's going to do and how it's going to work Okay, but in 2nd Chronicles chapter 36 in verse 20 it says he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him this is Nebuchadnezzar and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate to keep sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Why 70 years? Because for 490 years, the Jewish people were supposed to, every seventh year, let the land rest. On every seventh year, okay, six years, plant, harvest, do all that. Seventh year, don't do that. Let it rest. God will give you a double portion on the sixth year to take you through the seventh year. Well, they didn't do it. They didn't observe the Sabbath. They, They continued to work and farm and produce and harvest just like they normally would. For 490 years, and then finally, after God had prophesied back in Leviticus, he fulfilled his promise, and and Babylon came and conquered Israel. For 70 years, the land lay in Sabbath rest. Pretty big deal to the Jewish people, would you agree? God said it, then he did it, and then, after 70 years, they go back to Israel. Israel. What do you think is one of the top things that they're concerned about? I mean, number one, their temple's been destroyed, um, so they got to get that thing built back up, right? And then they got to build some walls. But the one thing, religiously, that they need to make sure that they're going to do is keep the Sabbath and make sure that they keep it right and don't break it and don't even come close to breaking it. Because that is the, the thing that God seems to have a hyper-focus on about the Jewish people, that makes sure they're keeping the Sabbath. So from that time, okay, we're talking about until, well, let's see, they return to Jerusalem, we'll say 450 or so, um, and then for 450 years until Jesus' time, they have uh, this... Need in their heart to make sure that they're going to not only keep the Sabbath, they're going to create all kinds of laws and regulations around the Sabbath to make sure that they don't even come close. So by the time Jesus returns or comes to uh, his people, they've created so many restrictions and legalisms and religious practices around the Sabbath that they are missing the point which is what religion tends to do when you create religious structures this is why people say um, they don't like organized religion well <laughs> that, that's good for us because we're pretty disorganized but the, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that notion I don't love organized religion um But I don't think that normally what people mean by that is what I mean by that. (laughs) What Jesus does is he addresses and he, in some ways, he attacks the structures that are keeping people from having a right relationship with God. Because it's getting in the way of knowing him and serving him and honoring him. And so there are five different Miracles that Jesus performs on Sabbath days. One of them is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And each time that that story is told, it's told in connection with another event that happens on the Sabbath. Jesus and his disciples, many of you know this story, are walking through the grain grain fields, and the disciples are picking heads of grain and they're breaking them apart and they're eating the, the kernels inside. You remember this story? And then. Some of the other people that are with them, around them, see them doing this, and they say, why are you letting your disciples break the Sabbath? Right? Because they're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. You're letting them do that. That You're their rabbi. You're their teacher. You should stop them. Because now they've become superstitious about anything that even approaches the idea of doing work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says a couple of things here. He says one thing. He says he's Lord of the Sabbath. What that means is, I'm God. Okay, who's Lord of the Sabbath? God said, I created in six days. On the seventh day, I rested. Who's the Lord of the Sabbath? If Jesus says that, he is saying that he's God. Number two, he also says this. He says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So you got to get your perspective right here on, on what you're talking about. And in order to prove his point, the very next story that, he, or that we see connected to this is that Jesus is going to be in a synagogue. A synagogue was basically a Jewish church. Okay, it wasn't the temple. It was like the local uh, worship uh, establishment in a community. Jesus was in a synagogue, and he heals a man with a withered hand, a withered arm, just restores it. So in order to kind of make the point that they need to understand, um, he 's going to do a miracle to put together with this teaching. What is it what 's really lawful on the Sabbath is to do right, to do what 's right, uh, to honor God and to love people. So the great command is to love God and to love your neighbor. It continues on. There are four other healings that Jesus does on Sabbath, um, two of them are in John. John tells two different stories that the other Gospels don't tell. Uh, One of them is that the man uh, that was an invalid, he he wants to get into the pool of Bethesda because the angel stirs up the waters every so often, and when that water's stirred up, then all all the the gross junk at the bottom, I guess, heals people when they get into it. Uh, I don't know. So anyway, he's there. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he's complaining, well, if nobody helps me into the water, and Jesus says, okay, I'll I'll heal you. So he heals the guy, and then he tells him. So the healing is one thing, but then there's another issue. He says, pick up your mat and walk. Okay, now picking up a mat, carrying something on the Sabbath was illegal. But he tells him to pick up his mat and walk, and then they approach him. And uh, the Pharisees and the leaders and the scribes, they approach this man, and they say, why are you doing what's illegal on the Sabbath? And he says, well, the guy who healed me told me to. Now, last time, hold on. When the kids were screaming downstairs, Molly had told them um, to, to yell um, loud enough that we would hear them. So do you guys want to try to see if they can hear us? All right. On the count of three, make a loud noise. Okay? One, two, three. I think they heard that. All right. Now we're going to get into a battle and they're going to start be like the wave at a football game. So anyway, this guy, <laughs> this is John chapter 5. I just I love and I hate this story because Jesus heals this guy and he finds him later at the temple. And he says, stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. He's kind of warning him, like, your heart's not right. It, listen, the whole issue is not about what he does or doesn't do on the Sabbath. The issue is, where is his heart with God? And what does the guy do? He runs off and goes to the leaders of the, the synagogue or the, the temple, the, the religious leaders, and he says, it was Jesus who healed me. Goes and he tattles on the person who just gave him the ability to walk. Because he's offended that Jesus was implying that his heart wasn't right. Do you think there there's a modern interpretation or application of that story? Um, it's the whole issue: the heart, not the, the external practice. John chapter nine. Um, we have a, another story that I love. It's one of my favorite stories in in all of Scripture the healing of the man born blind, okay, and Jesus heals this man, and then he leaves, and again, he doesn't necessarily reveal, like, who he is or or anything, he just uh, heals him, Um, but then the blind man gets taken before the the Sanhedrin, okay, the, the religious rulers, and he's questioned, questioned. Now, the thing is, is that it's not just that he was healed, it's that Jesus made mud, so he spit on the dirt and he made some mud and then he put it on the guy's eyes and he told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and uh, he goes and he does that and he can see and so anyway the issue of breaking the Sabbath is that you're not allowed to make things okay you're not allowed to create anything so you can't put water into dirt and make mud because that that's like making something so they said well Jesus can't be a godly person because he's breaking the Sabbath and their whole mindset is that, that the Sabbath is the most important thing. Not this blind man. They actually, by the end of this whole thing, they cast the blind man out of the synagogue. They, they excluded him from worship because he dared to say, I don't know if Jesus is the Son of God or not, but he made me see, and therefore he must be a godly man. And they said, he can't be. And they cast him out. Jesus comes to him later, and he says uh, to him, and he was actually with another Pharisee, he says, I have come that the seeing, that the blind would become seeing, yeah, the blind would become seeing, and the seeing would become blind. He's talking to the blind man who now can see and has expressed faith in Jesus. And the Pharisee, who says That he knows the law and the word of God and the scriptures and everything else and yet refuses to trust Jesus. And remember what Jesus said. He says, you have the scripture and you think that by this scripture that you have eternal life, but this scripture talks about me and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What has happened in much of the church is that we have created religious practices, okay? That we think that by doing them, that that is somehow our salvation. John, or Luke 14, and Jesus is talking to the ruler of the Pharisees. Pharisees are um, people who are trying to be Perfect trying to get it exactly right. The law, every detail. They're trying to get everything right. He's a ruler of the Pharisees. means he's very high-ranking. He probably hasn't messed up too much, okay? And Jesus is at his house on Shabbat. He's invited him to come over and share the, the Sabbath meal with him. But they're watching him carefully because they're looking for a way to get rid of him. All throughout the Gospels, what you see is that because Jesus is really attacking the, the practices versus the heart, they can't stand him. They don't want him. They don't want his, his idea of having a relationship with God. They want their religious practices. They feel safe in those religious practices. We do these things, and by doing these things, we're right with God, and that's all that we need. We just need to, to do the things that keep us in a right relationship with God. And Jesus tells them he says well what's is it lawful to heal on the sabbath or not what's the greater good what's the real issue what's the heart of the matter and here's why i'm saying this is because we've worshiped we've gone to church today what did we worship you think about that I mean you leave here today you go about your business you go have lunch you do you know what you're going to do and you can say confidently literally I went to church but if you're asked did you worship I would think you have to step back and you have to reevaluate did I worship I read my Bible today but did I hear from God I mean, how many of us are reading the Bible on a daily basis and we're just checking a box? Yep, I read that, my devotional. I read that chapter. I read those chapters in the Bible. Yep, got it done. How many of us are praying, going through the grocery list of, God, please do this. Please heal this person. Please help me with this. I have some issues. But are we connecting with God? We're just, in that time that we've set apart to do Whatever, quiet time devotions. Are we actually connecting with the Lord? Or are we just going through? And I'm not, I don't know. For some people, I, I know if you were to ask yourself that, you're going to say, it's been a long time since I've connected with God. I've been religiously doing these things week after week after week, day after day after day. But I don't know the last time I actually connected with God. And that's a scary thing and it's a hard thing, but here's what I'm going to tell you. I'll tell you a couple of things. One is that God wants to connect with you. Do you believe that? He, He wants your heart. He wants your attention. He wants a relationship with you. Okay, so let's just put that question aside. Like, why am I not feeling God's presence, or connecting with God on a personal level, or let's just put that issue aside of God is like mad at me and doesn't want me, okay, that's, that's not happening, he loves you, he wants a connection with you, he wants a relationship with you, okay, so we can just check that at the door, okay, he loves you. Here's the other thing though, this is the greatest thing about Christianity, and maybe the hardest thing, You have to be intentional about seeking the Lord. God does not honor religious practices that are devoid of personal intentions. Does that make sense? I've religiously been giving my tithe, God owes me something. <laughs> he doesn't owe you nothing. I've been going to church every week. God, I'm get, I am get to go to heaven because of it. No, that's not how it works. I've been reading my Bible every day, therefore I... Let me just say it this way. Keep doing those things, but make sure that when you do them, that you're seeking a relationship with God. Amen? And when you do that what's going to happen is that you're going to find the peace the answer the strength the encouragement, the conviction the things that God wants to bless your life with you're going to find them in that relationship but if you just go through the motions you're going to find that your spiritual life is very very dry I've been very dry at times in my life have you? What's missing? I mean, it's me. I just, I got to seek the Lord. So Jesus attacks the Sabbath with this issue. He says, there's nothing wrong with honoring the Sabbath, obviously. There's nothing inherently bad about practicing um, rest and seeking the Lord, and putting distractions aside, and spending time with the Lord, but make sure that you're not just going through the motions of doing something legalistically. Make sure that you're actually seeking God in it. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us. You want us to know you, want to bless us with your presence, with your power, and God, I just, I pray that we would discern, determine, Lord, what is in the way of that relationship. If there's something that's hindering us from coming into your presence, God, that that we're we're being blocked, God, would you show us? Jesus was revealing to uh, his people over and over and over that they were being blinded by practices that were inherently meaningless because their heart was so far from you and they wouldn't give them up. And God, and I pray that we would not fall into that trap. It's, it's human nature to want to have a structure, to feel some sense of peace and knowing that we're doing these things and these things are somehow working. Lord, I I pray that you would help us to see past that. Break down any walls. Destroy any idols. And Lord, pursue and seek after you with our hearts, Lord. And in all that, Lord, we pray that we know you'll meet with us. You love to. You long to. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I want to invite you um, this morning just to respond to the Lord as He's speaking to your heart, whatever that might be. The altar is a place where if God is just calling you, tugging you, pulling you, um, that it it may be a moment for you to to come and kneel, um, to hear what God has to say to you. Um, But it's, again... It can just be another religious thing that you do. There's nothing magical about coming to the altar. It's really about listening to God's voice. Amen. And so if the Lord is is calling you to, to respond to him, then uh, then do that. Let's stand and sing.